everyone, and welcome to Before Amber, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Lady Amy. Today, we are remembering Christina Marie Tournay Sandoval. Her family and friends called her Tina, and she was in the middle of a separation from her husband, so we're going to call her Tina Tournay. If you try and look her up, some things may say Tournay, and other things may say Sandoval. Tina was born on March 17, 1972, to Michael and Marie Tournay. She was the second eldest of nine children. She learned early how to care for others. As being one of the eldest of so many children, you tend to have to help out. We can assume this is where she got her love of caring for others. When Tina was in school, she was a good athlete and worked hard academically as well. After high school, she continued her education, going into the medical field. Tina worked hard on her education, and after many years of studying, she received her BS in nursing. With nursing, there's kind of different levels. Getting a BS is a little higher on the scale. She worked as a lower level nurse while she was in school. All levels of nursing are important and requires a great amount of work, education, and dedication. Shout out to all the nurses out there. Thank you for doing what you do. Y'all are very important people. Anyways, when she was still in school, she met John Sandoval. To her, he was very personable and he really liked her. Sources didn't say how long they dated or how long they actually knew each other before they got married, but it did say that Tina hadn't introduced him to her family until just two weeks before their planned wedding. Tina's family liked John. They said he seemed to really love her and cherish her, and Tina was happy, so they were happy for her. John's family really liked Tina as well. They said she made him happy, so it seemed like they were right for each other and happily in love. On December 13, 1991, they married in a small chapel in Drake, Colorado. All seemed good, but as we all know, things are not always as they seem. Before they got married, Tina and her family actually were contacted by John's first wife. We'll call her Patty. Patty told them that John was crazy, a psychopath, and that Tina should not marry him. They all chalked this up to just being a jealous ex. However, not long into the marriage, Tina started to notice some things about her husband. They just were questionable and a little worrisome. In 1993, John was arrested for violating parole from the state of California. Tina had no clue that John was on parole, let alone that he was violating it. He was on parole after being convicted of theft. He explained to Tina that it was just a big misunderstanding, that he really didn't do anything. I don't know what exactly this guy said to her or her family, but she and everyone else believed him. They believed it was just a mistake and they would even visit him in jail. However, this wasn't but just a small piece of things. Now, I don't want this to be all about John, so I'm going to limit as much as I can about him. He is not the victim and doesn't deserve any more time than what is needed for the story. I just want you to know that there is a very long list of crap that he has done or believed to have done over the years. Now back to his and Tina's marriage. Tina slowly began to see the truth about John. He would leave at late hours and would be gone for long periods of time. What was actually happening was he would see a woman that he liked. He would then follow her, stalk her, sometimes for just a few hours, other times for days. At times he would break into their houses and stare at them. So basically he was a stalker, a trespasser, and a peeping Tom. Police had to deal with him many times and would have to go to his home. Tina was finally done. After just over two years of marriage, she couldn't take it anymore. She told John she wanted a divorce. Being the wonderful guy that he was, he said no. In fact, he pulled the same thing that many other controlling people do. He put a gun to his head, threatened to kill himself if she left him. Thankfully, Tina did not fall for this, and she still went ahead with filing for divorce. Please, ladies, and even men, 
If you want out of something and someone threatens this, keep going, keep getting out of that relationship. This is just a way to control you. I know it might not seem like it and it isn't as easy as it sounds, but trust me, please know that this is not normal and it is just another sign that you should leave that person. Get help from others with leaving if you need to. If someone truly cares about you and loves you, they would not do this to you. This is just another means of control and don't blame yourself for their actions. Okay, I'm done with my PSA. Like I said, this didn't stop Tina from moving out and getting her own place and working towards starting a new life. This all came kind of as a shock to her family and friends. They had no clue how bad things were. Tina kept it all hidden. She was scared of John, and she didn't want anyone to know. They didn't know that he had threatened her or how he was very unhinged. They didn't know about his late-night outings or the fact that he, quote, suffered from voyeurism disease. I didn't know what this was. I had to look it up, and it really, ugh. I didn't want to look any more into it than getting the definition, which says, quote, a person who derives sexual gratification by watching an unsuspecting person as they undress or engage in sexual activities, end quote. Yeah, it sounds like a freaking excuse for a pervert or pedophile. I don't know if he was actually diagnosed with this or if it was just a self-diagnosis as an excuse for his actions. Moving on, their divorce was not a quick or easy one. John fought her every step of the way, He also stalked her. She told family that oftentimes she would see him outside her apartment or he would just be sitting in his car, sometimes for hours. She avoided John as much as she could, yet Tina still had to meet him one more time to get some papers signed, which would handle some IRS money stuff between the couple. It was pretty much the last thing left in order to get the divorce completed. Tina really did not want to go. She definitely didn't want to go alone. She asked her sister if she could go with her, but her sister really just could not. Because she couldn't, she told Tina to call her the second she was away from John so that she would know that everything was all right. For weeks, Tina had made comments that if something happened to her, it was John that did it. She was very nervous about this meetup. On the day she went missing, she told her friend and coworker how nervous she was and that she really did not want to do it. Tina left work from North Colorado Medical Center in Greeley, Colorado on October 19, 1995 at around 7.30 in the morning. She was set to go meet John to get those papers signed, but after she left work, she was never seen again. Later in the day, Tina's sister got more and more anxious as the call from Tina never came. She didn't know what else to do, so she reached out to her family and asked if they had heard from Tina. Of course, no one had. Tina's mom went to her house and couldn't find her. Her car wasn't there. Knowing that she was supposed to have met John that day, she went straight to his place where he was living with his aunt. His aunt said he wasn't there. Tina's mom, though, could actually see Tina's jacket hanging in the kitchen. It was like on the back of a chair. Maybe she had been sitting there, got too hot, and just kind of hung it behind her. Her mom knew something was wrong, so she went to the police right away. She didn't even stop to think twice about it. We all know most of the time you're going to get that whole, she's an adult, she can leave if she wants to, blah, blah, blah. But the police were way too familiar with John, so as soon as they heard that her estranged husband was John Sandoval, they went straight to work. They went to Tina's home and noticed that it did appear that she actually had made it home after work. Her work clothes were there, her work ID was there, but her car was gone. They went to John's place where they were told he wasn't there. Police knew they needed something on John to hold him. They knew he was not going to be easy. They actually had the ability to issue a arrest warrant on an unrelated issue. 
With this warrant, they went back to John's house where his aunt said that he was in the shower, but she quickly changed her statement and said that she meant he wasn't there. Keep in mind, his family was well aware of his actions and things that he's done over the years. They had been covering and lying for him for years. Police made the decision to actually enter the home because if he was in the shower, he could have been washing away critical evidence. John, of course, was trying to escape out a window at this time. He was quickly caught, taken into the police station where he immediately said he wanted a lawyer. He wouldn't talk. He was not being cooperative in any way. The only thing he said was that he had no knowledge of where Tina was. He just sat there biting his nails. This could be a nervous tick, yeah. A sign of guilt, sure. Or it could be a way to destroy any evidence that might be hidden under his nails. Didn't think about that at first, did you? Neither did I. They also noticed he had scratches on his face and neck. Because of this unrelated charge, John stayed in jail and was actually later sentenced to six years for charges of trespassing. This gave the police the ability to focus on finding Tina without dealing with or keeping track of John or him trying to interfere with the investigation. While officers were dealing with John's arrest, others were out looking for Tina. The arrest of John and everything was happening in an overlapping time of October 19th and October 20th, so still like right at the beginning of the investigation. In the early hours, they found Tina's car, but with no Tina. It was actually just four blocks from John's home. Dogs tracked her scent from the driver's door to the front door of John's home. Police were able to get a search warrant for John's house and car, where they found some pretty good yet circumstantial evidence. They found a five-gallon bucket, a muddy shovel, a flashlight, a rope. One source said that the flashlight was actually tied to the rope, Tina's credit cards, and they found a loaded 9mm gun. Because this was all circumstantial and they hadn't found Tina or could even prove that she was deceased, the DA at the time wouldn't file charges. Not that he didn't think John was guilty, but because of double jeopardy, you only get one shot at him. For those of you that don't know, or if you are international listeners and you might not have double jeopardy where you are, basically what it is, is it protects someone from being tried over and over. If you go to trial and that person is found innocent, you can't retry them later on if new evidence was found. You get one chance to prove they did it. In the 90s, there were very few nobody cases that went to trial. It was just way too risky. Tina's family did not stop looking. They followed up on any and all sources, as did the police. Her family reached out to psychics over the years. They reached out to really anyone that could help them. Over the years, police followed up on leads too. Many inmates came forward with statements saying that John told them this or that. One somewhat believable one told officers that John buried her in a graveyard that he used to work at. This inmate's sister supposedly worked there too and knew something about it. Police went to the sister and she was like, nope, don't know anything about that. And she said that her brother actually had a thing for the theatrics and making up elaborate stories. So police went back to this inmate and he admitted he made it all up. But this did put the thought in officers' minds. John had actually worked at a cemetery at one point in his life. So twice during the investigation, both in 1995 and in 2005, they checked out graveyards as part of the search for Tina. They were looking everywhere. Early on, everyone pretty much was sure that Tina was dead. There was no activity on her accounts. She didn't renew her nurse's license when it came time for that. No one used her social security number. Absolutely nothing. There was also no signs that she would have ran away. Her debt was paid off. She had just signed a new lease. She was starting a new life for herself. She was happy and she was looking forward to the future without John. 
In February of 2002, a judge agreed that there was enough evidence to conclude that Tina was deceased and a death certificate was issued. Police didn't stop, but nothing was showing up. No new evidence that they could find. In June of 2009, a new DA came along and he wanted to take a fresh look at Tina's case and put some new eyes on it, just in case something may have been missed. Well, nothing was really missed, but they also didn't really think too hard or focus on something. If you remember that list of things that they found in his car, Tina's credit cards were on that list. So they got to thinking. They looked and they noticed that the cards were used a couple days before she went missing. And she had no contact with John from the time she used those cards last to the meeting with him on October 19th. So how did John end up with those cards? They found it very unlikely that she would have just handed them over to him. He had to have taken them from her. That was it for the DA. The DA was like, I know it's not a smoking gun, but I think we have enough evidence to convict. So in June of 2009, the DA filed first-degree murder charges on John Sandoval. Now, John had served four of those six years he had gotten for trespassing back in 1995. He was released back in December of 1999. So by now, he had been free for quite some time. After his release, he left Colorado and went to Las Vegas, where this creep kept up his peeping Tom tactics, and it was very disturbing what all they found that he had been doing. But again, this is not about John. Police arrested him and had him extradited back to Colorado for trial. Apparently, over the years, he had been telling people that when he would come to Colorado, he would see Tina, that Tina was alive, that she was fine. He didn't understand why others didn't see her or why they were saying she was dead. Of course, he used this BS as part of his defense and trial. The defense tried hard to fight, saying that there was no proof that Tina was in fact dead and that she could have been a runaway. The jury didn't buy any of this and the credit card evidence really helped the case. John was found guilty in August of 2010 and was sentenced to life in prison without the chance of parole. He still claimed he was innocent and filed appeals right away. In March of 2016, the Colorado Court of Appeals overturned his conviction and granted him a new trial. There was some kind of procedural error that was identified by the Court of Appeals. The DA was not worried at all. They got him once. They felt like they could do it again. Apparently, John felt the same way. So in March of 2017, he had his attorneys approach the DA with a plea deal. This was just two weeks before the new trial was set to begin. The plea deal would be that John would plead guilty to second-degree murder charges, which would be a 25-year sentence backdated to when he was first convicted in August of 2010, which meant he would be eligible for parole as early as 2020. In exchange for this, he would tell them where Tina was. The DA approached Tina's family, and they had to think hard about it. On one hand, they would finally have Tina back, but on the other hand, John would be able to be a free man again. In the end, they agreed to the deal, so John led the police to Tina. He took them to Sunset Memorial Garden Cemetery in Greeley, Colorado. On the early morning hours of October 20th, 1995, there had been three pre-dug graves for funerals later that day. John dug a little deeper in one of them, placed Tina there, and left. He covered her up with some dirt, of course. The cemetery... They didn't know any better, and they went ahead with the funerals as planned, burying someone on top of her, not knowing she was there. This is something that really pisses me off, and I've tried to figure out how to tell this part of the story. I'm not going to give this person's name because I want them to be remembered for who they were and not the person that had a murdered victim under them. What pisses me off about this so much, whether John knew this or not, 
but the person that she was buried under was a World War II vet. The DA and officers said they saw this and were sick to their stomachs. I have a major soft spot for military members, old and new. I have plenty of friends and family who have served, but I have an extra soft spot for World War II vets. Both of my grandfathers served in World War II. One of them was actually a POW. So the fact that this poor soul had to be disturbed after finally getting peace just makes this whole story even worse. Because not only was Tina and her family and friends victims, this person and their family were now John's victims as well. The family of this person was very cooperative. They, of course, were heartbroken and pissed when they learned about this, but they wanted to help. So pretty much right away, I think even that day, they went down and signed paperwork so that their loved one could be exhumed. They handled it all with the utmost respect. The honor guard was there for everything. He, of course, was placed back and hopefully able to rest in peace now. Tina was found covered in a tarp sealed with duct tape. We do not know the cause of her death and we won't know the cause of her death unless John grows a soul and tells us. It was not part of the plea deal as Tina's family wanted to know, but they also didn't want to know and they did not want to make the terms of the deal any more complicated. They just wanted Tina back. After 22 years, they got her home and she is now laid to rest and at peace. If you remember the inmate that said John told him he buried her in a grave. That inmate really did not know what happened to Tina. He was just that close with his story. John was up for parole back in 2020, but was denied. He is up again for parole in January of 2026. His mandatory release date is October 16th of 2029. I hope the family now has some peace of some kind and that Tina can rest in peace in her own place on earth now. That's all for today's case, everyone. If you don't already, please follow or subscribe depending on where you listen. Share the podcast with your friends and family. Please leave a five-star review as it really does help the podcast grow. If you have a case you want us to cover, send an email to beforeamberpod at gmail.com. You can also follow the show across all social media at beforeamberpod. We will be back in two weeks to remember someone else. Until then, thanks for listening. Later. All sources are listed in our show notes, but some of those sources include newspapers.com, the Colorado Department of Corrections, Denver Post Paper, and Denver News 7. Thanks again. Later.